Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, the following program, True Crime Uncensored, is produced by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. From the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, True Crime Uncensored. I am, dare I say it, and I dare say it. Please don't. What's your problem? You're imaginary. I'm imaginary. Yeah, I'm the imaginary burrow bear, living legend of my own mind. That's Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker. And calling on the phone. We are calling on the phone. Has the phone rang yet? <laughs> Hello, welcome back. It's great Thank to you. have you. Thanks for having us. Return engagement. Yes, we're engaged. Stephen Singular and Joyce Singular. A singular Hi. experience. Hi there, fun lovers. <laughs> we had so much fun last week, we said, boy, I wonder if that was a one-off or if we can get him to come back for a second date. <laughs> like speed well. dating. I have the speed and you're the date. So, <laughs> so we're all right. Let me give him your credits real quick. Uh, in case you don't know, uh, Stephen Singular, who's the guy, he has uh, 25 nonfiction books at least. Uh, many of them have been bought and read by people. <laughs> and with all true crime writers, there's about uh, 19 of them that people look at and go, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's show business, and show business is our life. Uh, Joyce has managed to crank out uh, a few also and is doing her best to rival him in uh, public acclaim. Yes, exactly right. Yeah, and they still haven't figured out who's going to empty the dishwasher, which is <laughs> one of the major talking points that uh, they yeah. bring up at, yeah. in group counseling. And <laughs> it's... <laughs> But, uh, Maybe we can work that out during yeah. the show. Well, yeah, murder and madness and mayhem we can handle. It's, yes, the, it's, it's the, the menial uh, household tasks that drive a, a couple crazy. Yeah, right. I, I, had a, I had a very good friend... Uh, who had a husband for a while. <laughs> the, the problem there was anything she could do, he could do better. So she had to find something that was her own. So she became a photographer. And he watched her do this for a couple of years and said, you know, hon, that looks like fun. And he went out and bought all sorts of fancy photographic equipment. And within 12 months, he won international awards and she divorced him. <laughs> wow. That's some comp heavy competition. Yeah, there. yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah, but he had a lot of money. Didn't bathe often, but he had a lot of money, and he'd he'd, uh, he'd pay for her and her kid to have fancy vacations. But let's get back to the show, shall we? Do we have one? Yeah, we have a show. Um, we got some very. In fact, uh, someone said a very nice thing about last week's show. They listened to it. And that was a plus. And the other thing was, they said, "I've heard hundreds of true crime shows, and this is one of the best I ever heard." Wow, that's very nice of them. Yeah. Wonderful. Uh, he's in an institution somewhere, but we appreciate it anyway. Uh, well, nothing better than an actual psychopath giving us credit. Well, I'll tell you, there is a website. Maybe uh, Stephen knows about this. Perhaps he's a member. Uh, it's a website for sociopaths run by sociopaths and psychopaths. Honestly, it exists. Because Where do I sign up? Yeah, they, they did a critique of a short story I wrote, and they said, this isn't really how psychopaths, so our bear has it all wrong. Well, gee, you know, when psychopaths and sociopaths criticize your portrayal of psychopaths and sociopaths, that's pretty rough criticism. It really bothered me for about 30 seconds, but I got over it. Interesting, so the biggest that we all study sociopaths and psychopaths in our work. The uh, one of the fellows came on there and said, "You know, uh, I'm a sociopath and I don't care about anybody." <laughs> he says, "But uh, I, I haven't had any problems because I realize that if I do all the things that we do, my life will be miserable because I'll be in prison. So purely to protect myself, I pretend I'm nice." <laughs> so. It works for him, and you know what? It works for me, too. So I think it's a heck of a deal. What, the, what is this? Uh, there's a book that you did, uh, one of you or both of you, with John Douglas. 
Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyone you want me to be? That yeah. One, so which one of you wanted to be? On which one of you wanted to be John Douglas? Uh, no, no. So three of the book, three of the books have been about Kansas. I'm from Kansas, and there's not a lot to do there. So <laughs> you write books some, about it, right? Yeah, yeah. So yes, uh, this came about because we went out to visit my aunt who lived in Kansas City in the in June of 2000, and John Robinson had just been arrested as the. Uh, one of the most prominent serial killers in the history of Kansas. Internet serial killer. Yeah, internet. He was. They have internet in Kansas now. They did. They do. I just and thought what they had was, was strings to, to coffee cans spread around the community. <laughs> he was considered to be the first serial killer who was a serial killer before the internet to use the internet when it came online and and then use that as his hunting ground. So his hunting ground had been, you know, fairly limited in the Kansas City area before that. Now it's a worldwide web, obviously, or at least national. So he started, you know, bringing in women from all over the country, some of whom ended up getting killed, and some of those ended up in these 55-gallon barrels on this farm that he had. So he was sort of known as, the, you know, the barrel, barrel collector. serial killer. What did, well, what did he do with them once they were in these barrels? Well, he was just hiding hiding the evidence. You know, oh. they were just decomposing over a period of years. So, uh, you know, a fascinating story of somebody who was, he, ha- he would have five computers set up in his home. He was a family man. His wife would, uh, they had two kids. Uh, his wife would go off to work. And then he would get on these computers and just start looking for women, you know, sending out his pictures and saying that he was this wealthy farmer who lived in Kansas, none of which was, well, living in Kansas was true, but he wasn't wealthy. And he would bring him in from, where, Joyce, Colorado? Oh, all over the country, Kentucky. California. But the, the, one of the interesting aspects about him was he was similar to um, the BTK serial killer because he blended in well with the community. He was a Boy Scout. He had met Judy Garland over in England oh, wow. when, they, when, the, when the troops went over to um, entertain the Queen, uh, the young Queen Elizabeth. And um, so he blended in very well as a businessman in the community. But then he had this this other life, this this secret life. Good for him. Mm-hmm. I mean, not, not because of that he was doing those horrible things, but in Kansas, I can see you may need two or three alternate lives you know, just to deal with it. Yeah, he uh, he was he did this. He he his first known victim was in 1984, and he lured this young woman who was separated from her husband and, and living in this uh, sort of house for unwed mothers. She just had a, a one a one month or two month old baby. He got a hold of her. He he killed her. And he took the baby, and unbeknownst to his brother, he sold the baby to his brother for $5,500. Wow. About, like, a, like an adoption broker type yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. Kind of, he was a he serial killer entrepreneur. Yeah, his crimes, unlike BTK, a number of his crimes were based around money. He would get the women, bring them in, kill them, and then use scams to, you know, get Social Security or other... Or even their disability. Disability, that's true. Well, they were permanently disabled after they were in the drum, that's for damn sure. Permanently, yes. They were. So he, uh, he killed at least, I think, Ten people uh, in in this manner. I think those last five or six were after the internet came on, and then uh, there was one woman. What he would do would would get them to sign these papers or letters. He would have them sign at the bottom on this nice stationery. He would say, "We're going to be traveling around the world, and you'll need. You know, I know you're going to want to send letters to your relatives to let them know about this wonderful life that you're having." So if you'd sign these pa- these uh, pieces of stationery, you know, that would be good. Then he would kill them. Then he would fabricate the letters to send out to their relatives so they all thought they were alive. And he also would go, he, he would have them postmarked. There were places 
that you would send these letters to get a postmark right. from a different country, and then so that when the relatives received their letters from their loved ones, their dead loved ones, they just assumed they were off traveling somewhere. Right. So this went on. He was a criminal well before he started killing. That one of the standard lines from FBI profiling is that you know people who are serial killers aren't other kinds of criminals. That's you know one thing they often say. This guy was stealing money and doing forgeries and all kinds of things starting in about 1969. Then he started killing in 84, and it went on to, to 2000. Uh, the last woman he brought in was from uh, Michigan. Her name was Suzette Troughton, and he also was you know, heavily into the BDSM stuff. So he would take them to these hotels and you know, film these you know, very graphic scenes with them. Uh, she brought a dog to Kansas City with her when she was put up in a, in a hotel, and the dog got loose. I mean, this is the way he got caught, and the animal control people got a hold of the dog, and the woman's mother figured out that if, if Suzette was not with her dog, then something was definitely wrong with Suzette, or she was missing. And that, they were the first people to really pick up on his scams, and, and the, the dog itself sort of, you know, led them into catching him. But we were on um, 2020 in, um, no, last year in November for this story. It was, it's a very interesting story as far as serial killers go. The details are just, just off the charts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if he started in 1969, how old was he when they caught him? He was 56. He was he was 56 in in 2000. So he would be almost 76 now. You know, serving life sentence. Um, so. Is he still on death but, row? Uh, anyway, the the police conducted a, a two month investigation after they uh, got you know got a hold of the dog and, and sort of traced it back to her and realized that she was missing. In fact. She was uh, in one of those barrels uh, down on his farm. Uh, so they, the police, who were not very up to speed on the internet at all, were, were suddenly investigating all these Gorian, you know, chat rooms, BDS and M things. They were getting very educated about that that entire world, and that's another arm of the whole story that was fascinating. You know, what I found interesting about the um, the FBI and the internet is that when the Oklahoma bombing took place. The uh, they went to the Museum of Tolerance uh, here in uh, yeah. Los Angeles, yeah. and they yeah. talked to uh, this buddy of mine. May became a buddy of mine later, later on, and uh, he they said uh, asked me said what uh, Muslim uh, you know jihadist extremist uh, group did this, and he said, don't you keep track of this stuff on the internet? These are homegrown. These are, you know, anti-government right. militia nutcases. They go, they are? <laughs> he says, don't yeah. you? Well, no, we don't check the Internet. Right. Well, right. the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, provides the FBI with uh, uh, domestic hate group training. Yeah, now they do, but back in those days, uh, the FBI didn't know for sure whether they could check the Internet or not. Right. Right. It's a strange situation. Well, they were just they were just getting up to speed on it. I mean, that's why he could could do so much of what he did and go undetected. I bet his wife was surprised to find out what was in those barrels. Yes, his his wife claimed, and I think you know sincerely that she really did not have any idea what he was doing. I mean, he was having affairs with women. He had affairs with women all over Kansas City. He was also sort of running a bordello out of out of a somewhat seedy area of Kansas City. Yeah, as we said in the book, he was a very busy man. Yeah. 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 He was a what man? I, busy. Busy. Very he was busy. a very busy man. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess if you live in Kansas, everybody needs a hobby. <laughs> yeah. One of the interesting aspects of that is that three of the of the killers that were written about in, the, in in our books were all in the same penitentiary at the same time, and we often wondered if they had you know ever said, "Hey, did you know you know that you were featured in the book by that same guy?" Um, we wondered if they formed a book club. And yeah, that's very possible. 
Yeah. 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 That's like the what is there that TV special or documentary about the where they take the three guys in the mental institution who all believe they're Jesus and put them in group counseling together. Well, you have heard about this show, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the <laughs> triumvirate of Jesus is... Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. It's, uh, yeah, it's kind of became polytheistic <laughs> mental institution. Very interesting. I haven't seen the documentary yet, but it seems quite fascinating. So uh, how'd you and John Douglas get along? Um, next question. Okay. <laughs> Moving right along. <laughs> I met John no, once no, we, we, John, we did the great bulk of the work. You know, John lent his expertise uh, to certain things, uh, but we were the ones on the ground. Joyce attended the trial, and she had, you know, we've been around a lot of forensic stuff. I mean, she can tell you, but she saw things in that courtroom, both in terms of the sex tapes that he had made, but maybe even more, you know, graphically, they opened those barrels and they t had taken videos of that. So. Yeah, that was pretty uh, pretty grisly. But um, I, the forensics have always fascinated me in these cases. So, you know, just just hearing the um, the experts testify about, you know, what a hair looks like under a microscope that has been torn out of somebody's head as opposed to cut with scissors, those types of things, blood spat spatter evidence, what the bodies look like after they had been in those barrels for like two, three years in, the, least, in yeah. the heat of the, of the human, you know, Kansas summers. Um, they didn't look human anymore, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, after they arrested him they, and they got a search warrant for a variety of places, where he had these bodies. It wasn't just on his farm, but they went, a great crew of law enforcement went down to the farm and they took uh, cadaver dogs and all that and they looked and looked and looked and five or six hours went by and nothing happened. And then one of the dogs went over and sat down right by a couple of barrels and he just sat there and he wouldn't move. Mm. And that was their clue to, you know, pop off the lid and, you know, no one there had ever seen anything like this. Well, three of the barrels were buried on the, um, in the farm, and then two they found in a storage locker. Yeah. Yeah. And they had been there a long time. Yeah. Some of them about five years. So. Well, it's a good thing his wife had a predictable schedule. She could have come home just when he's rolling out a barrel. <laughs> right. No, she was. She was the, you know, the rock in the family, you know, had a, always had a job and was making money and raising the kids. But, you know, his, we all have, you know, stories of, uh, you know, being involved in these types of cases. But when he was arrested, I went to Kansas City and, and sort of got in the jail where he was. I wanted to, you know, talk to him. Um, before some other people did. And I, I got him, and he, they got him out of his cell, and we went face-to-face -face through the glass, and I was just about to start talking. And his daughter, who was named Christy, came running in and basically started yelling at me and told me to get away and, you know, threw me out of the situation. She was his staunchest defender. Now, he was killing women basically her age. Oh, so these things are always, you know, murder makes awfully strange bedfellows, as we all know. But she remained rather loyal to him for a long time. So that was... What, did she think maybe Mob did it and framed him? What was her justification for being so supportive? Well, it was just denial. You know, it's like we, we've kind of said before. I mean, you're living with somebody. This guy was, was monstrous. You know, to an extraordinary degree. I mean, a 31-year criminal history, um, all of the victims. He victimized many, many other people than those that he killed through financial scams and other things. Uh, he had plans to kill other women that didn't quite work out. So I, I think, you know, when that comes out inside of your family, it, it's a pretty tough well, thing to he, process. And when I was in court watching the evidence, um, his wife and daughter were sitting, you know, in the front, very, you know, as a sign of solidarity with him. But then when they showed 
And I'm sure the prosecution was told them ahead of time, or the defense told them ahead of time, what they were going to be presenting. And they, they showed this sex tape that he had made with one of the murder victims. And it was so graphic, and it was, you know, it was, it was really um, uncomfortable, let me put it yeah, that way. Yeah, I would imagine, yeah. To sit in the, and they left, the, those two left. But to sit in this darkened courtroom and have to watch what is basically amounts to a triple X rated, you know, porno film with reporters were all sitting like two inches from each other taking notes. And it was, it, but that was the one moment when John Robinson sat up, you know, the whole rest of the trial, he's looking like he's taking notes like one of the lawyers. But when they dimmed the lights and that movie came on, he sat up at attention. I and bet was he very did. Interested. Very interested. Yeah. Yeah. His last hurrah. Yeah. yeah. You know. <clears throat> look about top of the world. No. no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> In yeah. these sex tapes, he says, going to do the important part of the story. I think it was 39 minutes long, as I recall. Yeah, that was a long I mean, that, 39 that, minutes. Well, yeah. I don't know if they had one of me, it would be like seven seconds. It would be like they put it on TikTok or whatever that uh, video thing is. Wow. Yeah. Uh, was it voluntary sex with this woman, or was it a yes. coerced? Yes, that one it was. Yeah, it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Probably but killed her to keep said. her from telling that it was filmed. I'm sorry? Did he kill him? How was it? Did he kill her before or after the sex tape? Did oh no! After you know, after she she had told her family he, that she was going to be traveling around the world with him. So it hey, but it had a different meaning than what they thought it meant. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that Stephen is so easily amused. <laughs> he really is. Yeah. yeah. I am. Speaking you know, of speaking of perversion. Delve into darkness. You need some humor. Yeah, some uh, lightness. I think when I met John Douglas, he was talking about John Benet Ramsey's family, right? And mm -hmm. how they were just so vilified, like, oh, they must have done it. They must have done it, and uh, because they didn't cry enough in public or something. Well, they did. Uh, they did a book, presumed guilty, on the subject. Yeah, I remember that. What's that? Yeah. How did you research that one? Ramsey? Yeah. Well, it, it, it began, you know, the, la the day after Christmas of 1996, and I think we probably, I probably said this line earlier, but, you know, Joyce was watching the infamous January 1st, 1997 CNN interview with the, with the Ramseys. There was a lot of controversy about them going on. She was in the living room watching, and I was sort of walking around, and she said, you know, this, this is 30 miles away. We should get involved in this. And I said, well, there are only 300 reporters, you know, in Boulder covering this in addition to other people. So what's the point? But she prevailed, and we went to a the first press conference that was held on this case, which was January 9th. And... Uh, she, uh, we met a woman there who worked for a television station in Denver, and she said, I'd like to show you something at, at the station. So the next night or so, we went down there, and we were taken into a back room where there was a hacker. Now, this is the first week of 1997, so the Internet for public consumption is really very, very new, right. also in terms of law enforcement. And we were taken into a back room. I'll let Joyce sort of pick up the story from there. Yeah, there were a few other people there, too. And we, we sat around, and, and the hackers sat and typed into some different sites. And... And where they were, where they, it was child pornography sites, and there were little girls the same age as Jamine, and they were tied up, and, and they had their wrists tied, and, and very similar, you know, things around their their necks, and and they, and then he would type in, you know, or somebody would type in, does anybody have pictures of Jamine, dead or alive? And it was like a feeding frenzy. All these different responses would come in, you know, yes, 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 how much, how much? And this was like before the dark web, or probably, you know, at the beginning of what is now known as the dark web. You know, as a crime writer, you're sitting there and you're going, my God, this is an entirely new criminal realm. It isn't, you know, local or regional. It's worldwide. Because people were coming in from all over to, to try to buy photographs or trade photographs of their own children 
for these extremely graphic images that we were seeing of kids who were five, six, seven years old. Jamine ah. was six when she died. So we began sort of, you know, looking into that particular angle. And we also began interviewing pageant mothers uh, in the Denver Boulder area. And, who, photographer, and photographers. photographers. The, the photographers that were, you know, taking photos at these pageants with Domine. Right, and we be, when we heard one story over and over again, that there was a particular photographer who was John Bonet's primary uh, professional photographer, I guess you would say, uh, named Randy Simons, and everybody we talked to has said he completely freaked out in the aftermath of the crime. He was calling these mothers at midnight or after midnight, screaming and crying on the phone, saying, I did not kill John Bonet, I did not kill John Bonet, and they were all completely mystified. So we, you know, really began looking into the, the video photography angle. This information was eventually taken to the district attorney's office. I took it over to Alex Hunter, who was the district attorney, and he told me the most startling thing I've ever heard in, you know, 35 years of doing this kind of work. He said the Boulder police won't investigate this particular kind of angle. They're just fixated on the Ramsey parents. The investigation needs to be broader, and it needs to delve into some of these areas. And since they won't do it, you know, why don't you go ahead, you know, look into this and report back to me? Well, that, that is definitely shocking, although it is predictable that for law enforcement, sometimes you just focus right. to prejudge and then not explore anything else. Donald, yeah. right. And I, who was not only utterly technologically incompetent, I mean, I didn't know, you know, the ins and outs of finding these very, you know, um, dark spaces in the Internet, but also it's totally illegal. So I said to the district attorney, who's, you know, the lead legal official in the case, I probably won't be doing a lot of that. But the photographer, as I alluded to earlier, was highly, highly suspect. And last July, meaning July 2019, he was arrested in Oregon on multiple counts of child pornography. Uh, he will be going to trial in April. To, in April. No, so, we're not saying that we think that he killed John Bonet, but we think that there's an underworld of photography and the exchanging of photos, and that there could be some knowledge of that, you know, of what was going on at that time. We worked real closely with two highly, highly respected law enforcement people who were basically retired at that point. One was a, uh, from Colorado Springs. He had a 96% clearance rate for homicides, Lou Smith. The other guy was Ollie Gray, who was a private investigator, former cop from California and Houston. And they both believed that photography or video was present when the child died. So this the whole area of law enforcement would not go down this road. I mean, they, as everybody knows, they were just basically focused on the family. That's um, God, that is that is a combination of disgusting and sadly predictable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you you think that law enforcement would not shy away from the darkest of the dark in terms of catching criminals, but apparently there are certain things that are so reprehensible they don't even want to investigate them. Well, yeah, and, and it goes along with, like, these documentaries that we've seen, Children of the Snow and... Um, uh, the, the, the Keepers. Spotlight, the spotlight. Keepers. Yeah, and that type of, you know, some, someone in power keeping information down. So the punchline of the story from our end is is this, that in, and it goes along with what Burrell is saying, is that in 1999, which is effectively almost three years after the death, a grand jury had been set for 13 months to study the case, 30,000 pages of documents, who knows how many witnesses, and they, and they came back with their report. And the DA, again, Hunter, sealed the report in perpetuity. So the public has spent two to three million dollars on this investigation. 
grand jury did something, and the public was never allowed to know what it was. What, you know what the, the reason for that is? Just well, I, let me see if I can explain it. Uh, please. The book that I wrote and that Joyce was very helpful with was called Presumed Guilty. As everybody knows who knows anything about the case, there were only two scenarios posited here. The Ramseys killed their child, you know, that night, covered it up. Or an intruder came in to the house, killed the child. So the Ramseys are either totally guilty or totally innocent. So for the next 14 years, the grand jury report was sealed. And the Boulder Cameron newspaper sued the Boulder DA in 2013, and they got four pages of an 18-page indictment release, only four. Mm. And those four pages said, count four, the Ramseys exposed their daughter to the person who killed her uh, in first-degree murder. And count seven, the Ramseys then subsequently covered up the crime. So, in other words, the two ironclad scenarios for this case, neither of those counts fit those. The book that, was, that, that I wrote that came out basically said there's a whole lot of ground in between these two absolutes. The Ramseys could be partially guilty, but not entirely guilty. They could be guilty of something other than committing a murder. So, not to pat myself on the back too hard, but basically that was what the grand jury was saying. They exposed her to people, persons or people who killed her and then covered up the crime. So the, the, the death was not intentional, about. supposedly. What's that? But she wasn't killed intentionally. Um, that, that The grand jury does not reach a conclusion on that. I, I said to Alex Hunter in 1997, could somebody have just you know, things got a little bit out of hand, and, you know, it was an accident. And he said, if, when you see the depth of the wounds that killed her on her neck from the garage, this, in his, this or his words, this was no accident. So, I mean, it could have been an accident, but if you play out the scenario that we're sort of talking about here, um, it, it, it's, it's very different from saying the Ramseys murdered their child and then just decided to cover it up. There so, was a documentary a couple of years ago. Reporting what's that? that uh, a documentary a couple of years ago, you said? Yeah, no. on, on this uh, case where they, they claim that it was a family member that killed her. Oh, yeah. The, the CBS one, I think. Well, no. What, what CBS was promoting... What CBS was promoting is that Burke, who was nine years old at the time, killed his sister, and there is absolutely no evidence to suggest that. If you read the indictment, it says first-degree murder. No one under the age of 10 in Colorado can be prosecuted for a felony. And there's unknown DNA. And the unknown DNA is a huge problem. There's three yeah. different samples. And, and they also got sued and won. I mean, they, they sued and won that case. Yeah, the, the Randy did. So the Burke theory simply doesn't hold up. Right. So but, but clearly the indictment is saying an unknown individual. That's who we think, you know, committed the murder. And that's whose DNA is there. And perhaps someday, you know, a lot of crimes are now being solved through people that have submitted their DNA through genealogical sites. Right. And right. I'm, I'm sort of hopeful that maybe there could be a hit someday through something like that. I'm worried there's going to be a hit on you someday. <gasps> you know, we have gotten some nasty letters, yeah. I say. In the Welcome past. to the world of true crime. If there's a true crime writer out there who has not had a death threat, they're in a club <laughs> all by themselves. Yeah. Yeah. They're not worth their salt. Yeah. That's a, you know you're on the right track when you're investigating yeah. something and you get a death threat. You go, oh boy, I'm on the right track. No, you're right. We got a letter. We After we wrote a letter to the editor when the grand jury report came out saying, you know, basically this is what was set forth and presumed guilty. And all of a sudden, about two days later, there's a letter, you know, mailed to our address, to our home address, saying, you know, you're wrong. Start, get Shut away. up. Don't talk about Don't this. talk about that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I get yeah. those two. You know, I wrote an article for uh, thisistruecrime.com, uh, the uh, new true crime website that uh, Michelle McKee runs, formerly of uh, uh, In Cold Blog. 
And I wrote about death threats that true crime authors and journalists get. And, uh, you know, and the same thing with this radio show. Now, I don't know if anyone's threatened you to not come on here, but we've had guests who received death threats about coming on the show. Really? Wow. And, uh, in fact, one of them had two actual attempts on their life prior to coming on the show. Fortunately, uh, neither one of them were successful, so we didn't have to interview them through a trance medium. But uh, uh, Can we hang up right now? <laughs> beat me up, Scotty. Uh, that's why I, I always... a knock on the door? Yeah, I tell people, we've, we've never had anyone be killed because of the show. We've only destroyed careers. So here... 15-year-old boy... <laughs> said he was getting water um, and was actually in the area where that van crashed. He's okay. Not their lives. So it's, it's all right. Uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, Vegas Ragdoll uh, was the title of her book. She received uh, death threats before coming on the show. So, uh, but she's still alive, too. That's comforting. Yeah, that's, that's comforting. Uh, you know, the interesting thing about the United States of America, we're so uh, technologically, we think, advanced. Uh, compared to other countries, which we're not, because uh, there's some that were that are beyond us in terms of the internet access and texting and all that sort of stuff. That the uh, back at the time of the uh, the highly contested election between Bush and Gore, uh, you know, I was pretty much into that, keeping track of what was going on. But there was not the exposés in the United States of what went on that there was. In the UK, there were enormous articles, in-depth investigative reporting on the weird stuff that went on in that election. The closest thing I've seen to it is the book Stolen Future, The Untold Story of the 2000 Election by you. So, yes, that's true. What is the, and I dealt with some of those people back then, the Britain, uh, the British guys who were looking into some of the same areas that I was writing about, and and uh, yeah, so they did, they did some excellent work. But recently, Cynthia McFadden did a, sh- a thing on the news about um, ESNS. She went and talked to them, and you had talked. You had gone down to ESNS yourself years What's ago. ESNS. They're the ones. Yeah, that- it's the largest voting company in the United States, based out of Omaha. And the, the cards that were all in question in the 2000 election were were produced. Most of them were produced from the ESNS plant, which is outside of Dallas. And I, after the election, I went down there and did some investigating and. I went to Florida and got some of those cards. I, I don't know if we ever talked about that. The cards, I then called someone I know who worked for 60 Minutes, and uh, and that person went to Florida and got more cards. 60 Minutes did a great deal of testing on, a, uh, on the cards. They were going to do a program. Things got very muddy. They they found someone who was willing. You know, they they always have to have someone who will go on camera and explain these things as an insider, as, as true in the movie The Insider. is a very parallel type of situation with Jeffrey Wigand and the tobacco companies. This person would not go on unless they were indemnified against legal action because you're talking about the largest election company in the country. You're talking they had connections just directly into the Bush White House. Uh, one of the people who was invested in it uh, was a part of the whole Bush administration and all of that. And the first Bush administration, and on and on, 60 minutes dawdled and dawdled, and they didn't do the show. Then 9-11 happened, and then nobody wanted to hear anything about the warped 2000 election, you know, Bush's uh, ratings went from, you know, 45% to 95% overnight. And, that, yeah. uh, and then back down again. Dan Rather uh, endorsed Stolen Future. Yeah. Yeah. And that book came out as an ebook. Yeah. yeah. So if anybody out there wants to know more about the intricacies of that, of what happened there, and what was basically never reported on in the United States, as Burl is saying very, very accurately, this is a very small ebook. It's only about 30, 35 pages called Stolen Future, the Untold Story of the 2011. Well, here's an interesting little sidelight that maybe you know or don't know. I don't know if I told you this before or not, but I don't know if the audience knows it. Right after this, uh, the election took place, my brother, uh, who used to be a one-time uh, advisor, <laughs> excuse me, 
advisor, legal advisor of the Senate Commerce Committee <clears throat> under uh, Warren G. Magnuson. He was in Washington, D.C. for some time and knows all the movers, shakers, and Baptists and Quakers. Gets a phone call from Al Gore late at night. Wants my brother's advice. Gore knew everything that had pretty much transpired. The stuff that you investigated found out that his ear to the ground. And he, he said, do you think I should go on? I said, I can't decide. Should I go on national television and tell what, what really happened? And my brother's advice, if I recall correctly, at the time was, you're going to just look like you're nuts. <laughs> if yeah. you go on there and start telling what really happened, because if no one else is saying it in this country, uh, you'll just look like a sore loser. And uh, unless it is so important to you, unless it rips you up so much that you have to do it, regardless of the consequences, I'd say wait, because it's not going to change anything. Wait, wait, yep. you know, wait years and then tell the well, story. Here, so here, so here's the here's the the uh, denouement, so to speak, of that story. Gore didn't say anything. 60 Minutes didn't say anything. This information was given to the L.A. Times magazines, the New York Times. They didn't say anything. So four years later, John Kerry is leading in Ohio at 11.14 p.m., you know, with a significant lead, and he's going to actually get Bush out of the White House. What had happened in the subsequent four years, right after the card debacle in Florida, uh, ESNS rushed in, and they said, well, we can't use those cards anymore. They all have to be replaced with electronic voting. They sold $70 million worth of electronic voting there, and tens of millions of dollars all over the country. So now we've gone from at least a paper trail with something to computers that, you know, very few of us understand. And could be easily hacked, as we've Right. Now seen. So at 11.16, the computers go down. They're controlled out of Chattanooga, Tennessee. They, they come back up at 11.16 or 17, and, you know, Bush is ahead, and he wins the election. The failure to stop what happened in 2011, in my, in 2000, in my opinion, not only affected that election, but it elected Trump. And, you know, there is no reasonable explanation why the upper Midwest, which all polled heavily for Hillary Clinton in November, early November, late October of 2016, voted against her. She never visited Wisconsin because there was no reason to, because she was so far ahead. There's only one explanation, and it's not the explanation Robert Mueller was looking into. And that that starts with the question of why were the polls wrong? It's exactly the same thing that happened in Florida. ABC called the election for Gore that night because of the polls, and the polls were historically never wrong. But they were wrong that night, and that means that as those cards went back through those machines and were counted over and over again, the numbers changed. And that's what the little book is about. I won't go into the details. Details. But what happened in Ohio and what would subsequently happen is that the polls were dead wrong. Polls are not wrong. That means that the voting was somehow affected in ways we have never come to grips with. And again, it's a massive failure of American journalism, American investigation to find out what happened. I mean, that's directly on us as journalists and as people. And, well, journalists you know, get scared. They're human beings like anybody else. When the... When the uh, uh, so-called uh, uh, what was it, Gulf of Tonkin incidents that never happened. Yeah. Uh, report journalists knew it didn't happen. Journalists knew it was fraud. But did anybody come forward at the time and say this is BS? No, because if they had, it would have been seen as unpatriotic. It would have been yeah. seen as yeah. working for yeah. the enemy. Instead of they were just trying. You know, they, they couldn't tell the truth because the truth was not desired. At yep. that time, it wasn't until years later that Johnson himself said, "Ah, it could have been, uh, you know, dolphins or tuna fish out there. There weren't any U-boats or whatever." Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. right. So sooner or later, we're going to have to get to the bottom of that problem. I don't, I don't know how you do it. I mean, there is software that can be installed from a distance, utilized from a distance, and deinstalled from a distance, and that's you know, over most of our heads. But, you know, the the move, the rush to electronic voting hasn't solved the problem. 
No, uh, not not when you. I saw the demonstration where you can vote for one person and it registers for somebody else. I saw right. the demonstrator on TV. Yeah, well, that's a clever trick. Yeah. <clears throat> and I've also seen them uh, uh, hack into the, the electronic voting and change the results and still have it all, the numbers come out right. Yeah, I'm not good enough at math the, to do that. All of the stories that we're talking about are about, you know, going a little bit below the surface of things. And that's kind of an obvious thing to say, but not, not necessarily the way the world it looks today. You know, you, you can't just take those surfaces at face value. It's true in the Ramsey case, true in the OJ case, true in the election story, true, you know, in a variety of other cases. So, I was talking to uh, me and Mohsin Zia today, who's a author in Pakistan. We've become friends over the years, past 10 years. And uh, uh, he was saying that social media... In, uh, if you look at social media in Pakistan compared to what she says is real life in Pakistan, this is a vast difference. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he says that the, whoever the current uh, elected uh, head of Pakistan is, President of Pakistan or Prime Minister, whatever they call it, is, is uh, they say he's nuts. It's <laughs> very dangerous and strange. And so that's I can't imagine isn't that happening. Imran Khan, isn't that the uh, prime yeah, minister and of Pakistan? Says, but yet, says, if you look on social media, there's all this propaganda about how fabulous, all what a wonderful job he's doing. But if you mm-hmm. ask the, the normal human beings, except for a small percentage on the street, on what's going on, they go, something's scary. This is scary. There's like a disconnect, like an alternate reality. Exactly what it is. Exactly. That leads us into the our next topic, when men become gods. Yes, I've been thinking of doing that myself. You're imaginary. You can't do that. I was thinking of divinity as being something more than a type of candy. <laughs> so, that, was, that was that Warren Jeffs jerk. Yeah, we talked well, we, about a little yeah, bit we, last We've week. often looked for stories where religion intersects with violence. That yeah. always, you know, compelled us to try to find those stories. And the, and the cult anthology that we recently completed, we came across so much of that. Yeah. Did you get into, what was his name, Moses David and the uh, children of whatever? Children of God? Yeah. 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 yeah, that's in there. Yeah, he irritated me. Personally? No, not personally, but he he put out one pamphlet that was Meditations at the Shrine of the Bob in Israel. I'm a Baha'i, so I found that rather offensive. He had a picture of Abdul Baha's head stuck on the top of the Shrine of the Bob in Israel, and and I'm going, this is rather offensive. Right. I'm always suspicious of cult books, however, because most of them are put out by fundamentalist Christians, and anyone who's not their denomination is a cult. <laughs> so I, They're not, but everybody else is. Yeah. Well, the, the, difference, the difference between a cult and a religion is acceptance. Is acceptance? Yeah. You may be correct about that. Well, let's say if, if enough people... If enough people endorse insanity, insanity becomes normal. Yeah. Well, that, that works yeah. really well. Though. Yeah, it works real well. Yeah, I'm all in favor of that. Yeah, they say, look, what, 60 is the new 30? And irrational is the new normal? <laughs> you know, people won't be shocked by anything in true crime if it all becomes perfectly acceptable. So I wanted, uh, what's, your, what's your take on why people follow? I, I had trouble hearing the question. What's, what, is, what do you think the reason is that people will follow or become cultists of some Members of these, of. you know, uh, the, the, these uh, like doomsday cults, etc.? That's a really good question. I'll, I'll give you my take, and then, Steve, you can answer. I, what we uncovered, and I had to do a lot of research for this, is that it, it appears that some people that are in very bad places in their life, maybe they're... They're looking for something larger than themselves, or they don't have a good family life. And a lot of the cults represent belonging to sort of a family feeling, you know, uh, where they are accepted and surrounded by other people that have the same beliefs, and they, you know, they might be uh, suffering from some kind of substance abuse. Or it just seems to me that a lot of people got sucked in because they were looking for something. Remember that guy we interviewed, Steve, that was a a Mooney for a while? he put it really well. Yeah, that was. No, he he did. Well, my answer would be, 
you know, nature abhors a vacuum, and people have difficulty living in the unknown. You find it with a lot of these criminal cases. It's kind of what we're talking about. If you rush in and say, you know, Patsy Ramsey killed her daughter because she wet the bed, then that's that. You know, we're off the hook. There's, it's solved. It's nice, nice and tidy. That isn't the way life works, though. And a lot of these people just don't like being in the unknown. And when someone comes along and says, here's the answer to religion, here's the answer to sex, here's the answer to money, here's the answer to all of these things, you know, it's very, very enticing for a surprisingly large number of people. We wrote about people who were completely uneducated, who would, you would think, well, okay, they would get sucked into this. And we wrote about people on the Upper West Side of Manhattan in psychoanalytic circles who were yeah. extremely we're, sophisticated. We're the Sullivanians. And, and they were vulnerable to the same set of emotional dynamics that they wanted answers, they wanted absolutes, and they were willing to overlook an incredible number of things to get that. Oh, boy, it's that quest for certitude. Yeah, yeah, it is. Oh, the Keith Rainier one. We did that one, too, the Nexium. Yeah, uh-huh. I and mean, he was, yeah. So people who, give, people who can easily give away their power are very, very vulnerable in these situations. Well, I'll tell you, you know, I, I, I told one of these real fundamentalist people that was saying there's, you know, Earth is the center of the universe, there's no other planets, there's this, that, and the other. They go, well, there goes Star Trek, you know? Yeah, well, you know, they, they, their perspective is that observation is not valid. Yeah, don't listen to anybody but me. Well, you can listen Thank to some other true crime shows, but you got to listen to this one first. And buy all of Stephen Singler and Joy Singler's books. Yeah, they're great. They're great well, books. We'll have you back again sometime when I'm really hungry for controversy. Okay. <laughs> and stay alive in the meantime, okay? we got an endless supply. All right. Pearl! What? Well, I only, only heard a couple seconds of them, but man, they sound like ultra nutbags. What's the next day there, uh, Yeah, nothing like an investigative journalist to uncover uncomfortable yeah. truths. Yeah, no, of course. But I, I didn't even hear any of their truths. I just sort of depicted uh, who these folks are. I think they're... The, are they entertaining, at least? Yeah. Oh, yeah, hell yeah. Well, then that's good. Yeah. And he got great books. What's next, then, Burrow? Uh, a bunch of mindless idiots, including probably you and me, if I hang around. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, then, uh, yeah. Magic Bad Adam, the Demons of Decadence, is live in the Lighting Up Lounge. Yeah, let's go to Al Gore for a fact-checking, everybody. Yeah, let's do that.